Hey everyone, we're excited to present you this episode of WLTW on the horror thriller VFW. But first, it's important to note that since we recorded this episode in April, it's come to the horror community's attention, as well as ours, that the line producer of this film, as well as Satanic Panic, A Ghost Story, and other films, was outed as a sexual abuser. As well, stories escaped from the set from some brave women that Fred Williamson had sexually harassed them on set. We would have addressed these incidents had they been public at the time of the recording, but instead we just focus on Joe Bagos' film here. We've included an AV Club link in the show notes to lead you to the story and to get the context and to boost the voices of women in the film industry harmed by these men. With love, Aaron and Pete. I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm Sohail Reziazdi. And we love to watch. We love to watch is getting totally messed up on super cool, nuke, bliss, spank, soma, melange, substance D, black meat, Malaco plus, and hype. Hey Pete, hey Sohiel. Hi. <laughs> Hello. I think one of those drugs is in the movie. It's just hype, right? Yeah, yeah. Hype. The other ones are probably from your medicine cabinet. They're called hypers in the movie? Hypists? Yeah. I can't remember. They study the art of hype. All of them are in Public Enemy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah but thank you for joining us. We're, if you've never heard us before, where we love to watch. We're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of that month around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast them. And we're in our last a week of uh, Under Siege month featuring neither Under Siege movie. Um, I think I started saying Siege like that as a joke, and now it has become the way I say Siege from now on. So I'm sorry to everyone. A little more extra extra spice on the end of the word. Yeah, it's, 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 kind of, uh, it's kind of soft and European. I like it. Yeah, it's like I've I've combined Siege and Sergey into <laughs> into how I say Siege. Uh, but that's fine. Uh, we're in our, our last week of the month. So we've this is a, a rare month where we've kind of taken the theme and done it chronologically. So we started in what is considered uh, both – maybe not the first Siege movie, but the one that most modern um, examples have taken from uh, indirectly through its it inspiring Assault on Precinct 13. So we started with Rio Bravo. We did Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. We did Green Room, which I think is probably the best uh, modern example. And we decided to do something uh, a little bit outside of our wheelhouse, where we're talking about a movie that is, for, for when we're recording this, essentially hot off the uh, the presses, except uh, not presses, I don't know, hot off the satellite Stream links. Screen links, <laughs> yep. And in that, it, it just recently went on, uh, we're recording this in April, and it just recently came uh, to video on demand after being at festivals in 2019. But you were able to rent this for the first time just a few weeks ago, and that is a movie called VFW. And going into this, I hadn't seen it. Peter hadn't seen it. As far as I understand, Sohil hadn't seen it, uh, which is always a little bit of a risk uh, because none of us are necessarily saying, hey, we need to get this on the show because we really need to talk about it, whether either the host or our guests who will introduce more in a second. Uh, it also had we'll, – we'll get into this later. Uh, it also had the fun thing where Peter watched it a little bit before me. 
And I go to log it on Letterboxd, and I see his score. I see my score, and I notice those scores do not align. So, <laughs> uh, for for part of the reason uh, we we have a podcast is that in general our approach to movies and the things we like tend to be very similar. We've loved, I think, all the movies this month, so this will be interesting. Who who likes it? Who kind of has some problems with it? We'll we'll get there. But first, uh, the tiebreaker today. Uh, and, and first time guest and uh actual the the alternate theme just so you know so he'll for this month is peter's friends and family month because oh, nice. for uh for uh, uh solid precinct 13 who had his best friend in the world from childhood who is a four-time guest uh guy named ryan uh and then he had for uh green room we had peter's brother-in-law and now we have new friend pulled right out of thin air who <laughs> so heal hired uh, friend so hell yes yeah <laughs> um, but uh, yeah why don't you introduce yourself to our audience you are a first time guest on the show we're excited to have you uh why don't you introduce yourself to our audience yeah thank you guys so much for having me um i've known peter for a number of years primarily through uh his brother charlie Char- um, whom i met as um when we both worked on the college newspaper together in the arts section we wrote insufferable film and music reviews um <laughs> uh, at the same time and he was my editor for a while and then i met um i eventually met peter through charlie um these days i live in new york where i work at columbia university's graduate film program i am like sort of the events person there so i organize events and screenings and a number of film festivals um all of which would be happening right now if film festivals were happening right now so basically (laughs) (laughs) um i i organize three festivals between the months of march and june so my busy season is now uh far less busy and I have all sorts of time to do things like hop on this podcast. Um, I'm also uh, a freelance writer. I write for Filmmaker Magazine primarily. Um, I've also had pieces in Vice, McSweeney's and some other online outlets. Um, yeah, um, I've had not too much uh, ambition in that world lately. So, I was very happy to get um, a, uh, a request to be on a, a podcast and do something <laughs> like watch something for an assignment and, you know, take, take notes and you know, feel like uh, a thinking person again. So, thank you so much for having me. Well, well. So first off, I'm I'm thrilled to have you. I'm sure Peter is too. I do want to say Peter gave me none of your credentials for appearing on this podcast. He said I have. He'd mentioned a friend that he thought would be good on the podcast, and uh, and uh, but like I I feel like now I undersold your introduction, saying you were a uh a, just a friend of Peter's. When now it sounds like you're way more qualified to be on this podcast than either of us. <laughs> Yeah, he made it sound like I don't even like movies. You know? Yeah, <laughs> this is actually for community the... service. I have a—he's my big brother when I was a child. <laughs> yeah, we can uh, hopefully get uh, some momentum, some more spark back into your really terrific writing. Oh, thank way. you very much. Um, we can hopefully get a spark back into that uh, by you talking about a uh, dumpster trash movie. <laughs> and I mean that as a compliment, mind you. VFW. I, I met Charlie a few times. I really really like charlie quite a bit he's been a running uh, not joke on this podcast but something that comes up occasionally uh even before i met him in person and i will say i like that i'm piecing together this legend of charlie as a person um (laughs) 
through like these little tidbits like i didn't know he was the editor of a, a school newspaper that's awesome we did an episode on uh, <laughs> real big fish for something unrelated to this podcast and uh, found out that charlie was in a ska band in high school second so, time around yikes. yeah so i so feel like there's a legend no. that is growing even in my <laughs> mind through little tidbits of people that know him in his <laughs> life and then the second thing i would say is that uh podcasts are perfect both people Peter and I, I think at earlier in our lives, wanted to write uh, film reviews and do that kind of stuff and, and essays and, and that kind of thing. And what we learned is that it's really hard work. But if you if you just watch a movie, take notes, and then just talk out of your ass for two hours and then edit it down after, it's very helpful to be able to feel like you're producing content. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And see, for me, it's kind of the exact opposite. You know, I... Uh... Every moment I speak out loud with a microphone on, I'm like, I'm going to say something that's going to get me canceled. You know, I'm going <laughs> to screw up and um, there's going to be no editing at all. And uh, that's it for me. So, whereas yeah. writing gives me the time to work through my cancel worthy opinions and they never see the light of day. And then you just see the final product, you know. Yeah. It would be weird if this was all uh, just a Peter's machiavellian orchestration <laughs> to get you fired from your job like i know he's gonna say something i'm gonna have the recording he's out yeah i was gonna say i've been slowly collecting all of aaron and my uh cancel worthy comments from the past four years or so and eventually it's there uh, it's gonna be a super episode it's gonna be our mutual assured destruction <laughs> yeah we've said it on the show it is it is odd peter and i have now been very good friends for years and years 95 percent of all of our conversations are recorded <laughs> uh, That's because we bizarre. never talk yeah. on the phone and uh and the other ones have been in person so yeah uh, mm -hmm. our entire friendship has been recorded can be studied can be used to indict probably both of us at some point <laughs> in our lives it's, it's <laughs> nice to have that record now i know what it's like to grow up in berlin in the 80s yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're like a the stasi for each other <laughs> yeah <laughs> You've been recording me the whole time? <laughs> me too. You wearing a wire? Uh, uh, yeah, so let's let's get a little bit right into it. We'll talk about the movie as a whole. It is a risky thing when we do this. I think the only other times we've done this, Peter, is uh, when we did our like Love and Monsters month, we saw Shape of Water. That felt relatively safe. Like, we're not going to hate a Del Toro movie. Um... And, and, of course, we both walked out of that one loving it. I'm trying yeah, to think if Del Toro's not going to drop a movie about how white people drive like this, but black people <laughs> drive like this. Like, the movie, we, we kind of knew what we were getting with Shape of Water. It was just way more majestic than our expectations could have yeah, been. Yeah, we weren't going to be like, so he kind of made Triumph of the Will too, huh? Like, <laughs> not a fan. <laughs> yeah, like that, we were, we were pretty comfortable. Yeah. Um, however, if he had dropped that movie in the middle of a, of an award season, we would still, we would still conscionably need to cover it, right? Well, I mean, much like the original, I guess the best you could say is or the, good directing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's why I had to watch it in a foreign film class in college, I assume. I, I hope, like looking back, I hope that is the reason. That was the I had reason. To watch it. Yeah. Um, in North Dakota. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so it's a risk. Um, I'm trying to think, Peter, I can't think of any. Oh, the new Halloween. 
we saw. But we also we wrapped that into a, a, a Halloween special episode where we did the original Halloween, the sequel to the original Halloween, and then the new Halloween. So that felt somewhat safe, too, because worst case scenario, we hate the new Halloween. We can spend most of the episode talking about John Carpenter's amazing Halloween movie. Um, so I'm trying to think if we've ever done it where it feels a little bit like uh, I know you know the director. I've never seen his other two movies. Um, Three. Sorry, well, I haven't seen the third one either. <laughs> um, uh, and it seems like from looking up uh, some of those movies reviews from critics I like, like Scott Tobias or something like that, feels like he has a very mixed reaction. So why don't we start with you were the one that recommended this, although I admittedly I did see it showing up on video on demand services and it looked pretty awesome. Um, but you you were the one that's like, we should end it with this new movie. So before we get into who liked it, who didn't, uh, why did you want to do cover this one for Siege Month? So when we were exploring what movies fell under our concept of Siege Month, and let me kind of. Uh, re-explain that. Um, <clears throat> we wanted movies where the heroes were under siege by a deadly outside force. Most siege. of the movie, let's say 85% plus, takes place inside the siege. Uh, it's not a movie that happens to have one scene like uh, Home Alone or Skyfall um, that uh, that is that takes place uh, in a sort of siege setting. Um and we locked out. I mean, he doesn't leave the house that much in Home Alone, Peter. <laughs> it's true. He gets uh, a toothbrush. I can't remember another incident. <laughs> uh, he goes to church and he befriends an old man uh, who eventually joins his escapade. So, in a sense, Home Alone aligns with most of the Siege movies and uh, sort of bringing uh, disparate groups together. But anyway, so we wanted to start with Rio Bravo, which is not really a traditional doesn't really follow those rules uh but it heavily inspired assault on precinct 13 and then there's sort of three uh three barbs three forks and a fork in the road with three points i should say three tines um uh that that it went you know like i like let's let's clean this up we just call it like a trident maybe instead of like a broken fork 75% of a fork. (laughs) So uh, there's a trident in the road. Um, And uh, the the one path uh, from Assault on Precinct 13 was Green Room, which was very minimalist, very carpentry in terms of that sort of like uh, lean, muscular approach. Um, Then there was the Assault on Precinct 13 remake, which is very much a, a kind of a big bloated um, Hollywoodized movie. There's way too many plot lines. Characters get way too much characterization in a bad way. And then there's this, which is like a uh, indie kind of punky uh, effort that's very, uh, very much in, uh, like as low of a budget as Carpenter got. Um, adjusting for inflation, it's much lower, but uh, <laughs> uh, still a low a low budget effort uh, with a small cast and it has a, it doesn't have quite the minimalist approach. It's far more stylish stylistically lurid. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to explore um, how Rio Bravo inspired Assault on Precinct 13 and then Assault on Precinct 13 split out in sort of three directions. Yeah, and this is a good, I mean, it's a good concept for a low budget, right? Like, which is part of the reason why Carpenter ended up doing Assault on 
FreeSeq 13. It was like, we're going to do X percentage of the scenes in action at one location that saves on sets, that saves on a lot of other like location scouting, second unit, all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, and this this does have a good hook. It's sold on FreeSeq 13. It, it, it wears its homage pretty closely, I think, on its sleeve. It's not trying to, uh, but to pretend it's not that, but the riff on it is that instead of, you know, a, a police station, it is veterans at a VFW. Um, and so, uh, so, so heel, had you heard of this movie before Peter suggested it? I ha- I did pick a- up a little bit from the text chat that you may have been believed to you were going to come on the show to do a different movie at some point. <laughs> um, well, that's not quite true. I mean, I, I think, uh, um, Peter and I had discussed um, my love of the movie The Counselor, and um, uh, and we were intrigued about the idea of potentially my coming on the show to discuss that movie. But um, so that's how he 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 um, got the initial hook in, and then it was like, well, actually, we don't have room in the schedule of this calendar year for the counselors but how about this movie you've never heard of instead that looks like a straight to dvd movie from the early 90s um so i had never heard of uh, vfw before certainly um i had heard um i guess and neither i'd also never heard of the uh the director before and it, and at first i was uh when i saw the name and the sort of um the poster and all that and i was just like Man, Peter, what what kind of like <laughs> Alamo draft house bait movie are you trying to get me to watch? You know, like this is the sort of thing that is like trying really hard to be like a midnight Alamo type of movie. Um, but as as we'll get into it, and I don't want to spoil anything, but I uh, I came away uh, with uh, very few reservations about this movie. About um, I any of the initial um, hesitation I had, it. it it basically won me over. Uh, that's good to, to hear. hear. That's really good to hear because um, I always it's it's not. I feel like it's bad when Peter invites someone on the show and then they don't like the movie that he picked. That's bad for his self esteem. It's bad <laughs> for for uh, how how much he ends up drinking that night. Uh, so I think I think this is I think it's good that you like the movie. I was surprised. I was a little bit surprised how mixed I was on it. There, there's a lot I liked, um, and I think uh, would like to see more by this director. And there's a lot that just didn't really work for me, or I found a little bit grating. And we'll we'll get into that uh, a little bit a little bit more. But yeah, I I was because because. Um, I actually have, in general, less reservations about these movies. One thing Peter and I have talked about on the show a lot is that I really like that they. it feels like that we're getting um, the kind of movies from the 80s or 90s, those kind of straight to DVD or went to barely any movie theaters. We're getting like versions of those with a level of competence that we didn't get. Uh, back then like uh, Peter I think you've said it really well where we're getting the versions of those movies that exist in our memory a lot of times where there just is a big with the video on demand market and a lot of these boutique labels there's a big appetite to kind of produce a lot of 80s 90s horror cheese with some general like um, quality of life improvements I guess would be the way to put it (laughs) of some of those movies now Peter and I love those movies quite a bit but I I think 
there there's a level of just general competence that happens as filmmaking evolves as stuff like uh, they don't have to shoot on film which is their biggest cost as editing techniques improve that have that have allowed this emergence of um you know, a, a a pretty robust like when you look at all the movies, like especially when it comes to horror and genre movies that I think get recommended to me on any given year. There's like the big five or six that everyone goes crazy about, deservedly so, like a Hereditary or something like that. And then there's like twenty or thirty where everyone's like, "Did you see the Babysitter or Satanic Panic?" And like that are these great like over the plates three to four star horror movies and so like this i everything about this movie was was appealing to me it started out in a way which we'll get into more detail later that i was a hundred percent on board for and then i just i felt like it kind of uh either annoyed me or i was loving it it was but it was really going through some of those so um do you want to talk about the filmmaker a little bit yeah, let's talk about the filmmaker a little bit, who yeah, yeah was new so to Joe me. So Joe Bangos is someone I've been following since... Joe Bongos, right? From yeah. the Andy Daly sketch? Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. I, I love when you uh, quote Comedy Bang Bang, because it reminds people to tune in for a different, better podcast. <laughs> oh, it's much better. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a different... They have a whole different vibe. But yeah, I mean, quality-wise, and I think in the ratings... Money-wise, I think they yeah. beat us on all fronts. Uh, they're going to offer you very few uh, genre trash recommendations, though, I got to say. so. Um, so they will say least, Joe Bongos a lot, though. They, they will say that. So uh, the filmmaker, uh, Joe Bagos, is uh, like an indie horror guy who I followed since his first movie, sort of made some buzz in like the, uh, the sort of um, Fangoria uh, inspired circuits, the horror circuits. Uh, it's called Almost Human. And it's like an alien abduction movie with um, Halloween sort of riffs. Um, ho- a capital H Halloween John Carpenter film riffs. Um, and uh, but it was it was very much like a calling card movie. It was like it was a filmmaker announcing his arrival and saying like, all right, this is what I can do with with no money. Give me more money. And let's see what I can do. Then he made Mind's Eye, which is very much like a scanner's riff. Both of these very much Carpenter inspired. Um, Synthy scores. Uh, I think he even uses the, t- the Carpenter typeface. Um, and a s- sort of a lean, cold minimalism at times. Um, but gory. Uh, very gory. Very gore focused. Um, and then he kind of made VFW and Bliss like within moments of one another he essentially sold bliss and then immediately went into production on vfw um so bliss is is uh, a vampire drug ride kind of thing um it, but not the sort of depressing 90s version where it's like man heroin turns you into a vampire uh more of like a psychedelic crazy uh dmt nightmare ride um and then VFW was made pretty much immediately after um, because his first two features had given him enough cachet to sort of cash in a bunch of chips at once. Um, and he got to shoot Bliss on film, which is kind of cool. Um, and Bliss is on Shutter now. Uh, and then he got to do uh, when he got to do VFW. Uh, VFW had a. Um, uh, it had a, a cult scene emerging around it as it was being made because like the, the people were reacting to bliss and saying, Hey, when the hell is this guy's next thing coming out? And it was like, Oh, in six months, which is awesome. Like that almost never happens with filmmakers. Right. Unless That's always nice. It's States. like a Ari Aster with a hereditary yeah. and um, midsummer that a very next year. 
Yeah, like that's 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 actually going to create, I feel like, since he didn't have a sophomore slump, he has to have a deep and powerful third slump, right? Because <laughs> a junior year slump. Um, because, like, there's no way that he could occupy... Aaron and I do an annual recap where we do the best films of the year. There's no reason he could occupy top three slots for both of us two years in a row and not completely fall on his face next. Like, I don't know what his next thing is going to be, but... Just you know, if it's bad, I'll, I'll be like, yeah, man, that's that's fair. Like, <laughs> it sounds like you're cheerleading his failure. Yeah, you're, I, you know, I'm just setting <laughs> fair expectations yeah. for everyone because nobody nobody does hereditary and midsummer back to back like that. Uh, uh, well, according to him, I mean, I would be fine if we kept making these weird pagan inspired horror movies for the rest of his life. According to him, he's going to do a comedy. So, um, I I am very interested to see what an Ari Aster comedy looks like. Um, Peter, I have a question for you. So mm-hmm. you made a movie called Bliss about a drug. This movie's about hype, which is a drug. So I, I, maybe this is a multi-part question. One, do you think he had an idea for one fake drug, but couldn't decide on the name and one of his friends told him to please make two movies because the two names were so good? <laughs> yeah, and probably. Two, does this work as a triple feature with the movie Urge? <laughs> <laughs> Bliss is a better movie than Urge. But similarly... Urge was your number one movie of 2018? 2017? Yeah, it's a two-star movie, but it was the best movie of the year. Yeah. So, Heal, you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, that's just math, purely. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, I gave lots of movies five stars that year, but (laughs) I was thinking about Urge for like four weeks out of that year. (laughs) It does have Pierce Brosnan playing the devil. And vaping. And vaping. <laughs> I also have legit no idea what movie you're referring to. So urge called Urge, and it's it, about it, the drug Urge. It's about the drug Urge, um, as, as you're familiar with. Um, and it's uh, Pierce Brosnan uh, vapes, and he's the devil. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you have it's, my attention. I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's all. That's all you need. Uh, it's pretty. It's pretty good. <laughs> um, we'll we'll return to that later. Um, yeah. But but yeah. So you, this is this is very much this is very much part of the sort of um, the new trash horror movement that's been pushed forward by even like weirdly enough, Fangoria now has a production arm. Like, and they uh, didn't didn't they movie. produce this? Yeah. Yeah, they did this. They did Satanic Panic, and this is very much a movie like almost like made. It's not on Shutter right now, but it's a movie like made for Shutter. A movie you'd be like, well, it'll be there. This, this looks this looks cool. Like this is looks you know it cut a nice thirty second trailer, and then you watch it, and you're like, holy shit, that's just something you just dumped in our lap. So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm a fan of the filmmaker. Very much rooting for him, and very much enjoyed this movie. So. So really quick to uh, so Sohil, you mentioned some reservations a little bit about uh, those kind of made for Alamo like we're doing this just to create a like and I, I know exactly what you're talking about like a limited screening at Alamo only. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, do you do you find that like a lot of these like straight to video type level of horror movies um, are they appealing to you at all or have you kind of just uh, with with so many good indie movie options stayed with those for horror movies? I don't know. I mean, yeah, there, there are quite a, a number of good horror movies that come out every year now, and I feel like maybe this is unfair, but I, maybe I just have like a ceiling on how many horror movies I can be interested in in a year. You know, there are some people who are like horror heads and that's what they <laughs> seek out. And um, 
and if it's a horror movie and it looks decent, they're going to go see it. Whereas the reviews, I think, I guess I'm, I look more to reviews and word of mouth mm-hmm. and what I'm hearing from friends and colleagues. Um, for a horror movie, if it's very positive, I'll tend to go see it. But if it's like, oh, it was all right. It was pretty good. I guess I'm just like, well, I, there's not that much of an appeal there. Um, I guess for me, the, um, what I find interesting about the type of work uh, is whether um, these types of movies, it seems like they have two approaches. W- one is like uh, just like a good old fashioned nostalgia fest that's like fun. And mm-hmm. and then there's like the, you remember those, uh, there's the other approach, which is like, remember those old movies from the 80s? Now let's do a really dour version of that. That's like very serious. Um, So, it's always interesting to see which direction they go to. And I like versions of both. Like, I kind of think that Mandy was sort of that dour, like really intense um, version of like a psychedelic throwback movie, which, but I thought it was a great movie. Um, But but yeah, and then there's others um, like this one, um, VFW, where it's just like, you remember John Carpenter movies? This is a very good John Carpenter-like movie. And there's not, we're not trying to like add that much more to it. We're not trying to subvert your expectations in any clear way. We're, we're trying to give you what you probably are after by hitting play on a movie with this premise and this title. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a good call up because I do think there's there's a lot of space for... Like, you don't have to make a movie that's supposed to be like, here is my vision. You can make a movie that's, here's my take on a vision that's important to me. And that can be a legitimate, like, way to make a movie. And Peter and I, I think, talk about that a lot on the show because even for some movies that we cover where, like, well, John Carpenter's not making movies anymore. Uh, and the last one he did is his worst movie. And the one he did before that is his second to worst movie. So, I mean, give or take in a Memories of an Invisible Man. Um, but it's like, so if John Carpenter's not making movies anymore, like, or Joe Dante's not really making movies anymore, or a lot of these, like, horror, Cronenberg's not really making movies anymore, like, it's okay to just be like, well, here's my John Carpenter movie. Here's my David Cronenberg movie. Uh, and and that can yeah that is more than enough that I think um, uh, that they, that can kind of satisfy you as 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 getting that fix and it's something that I feel like everyone has done beyond this like I mean there's not a science fiction movie that hasn't been inspired by you know Star Wars in some capacity for the last thirty or forty years and there hasn't been a you know a big action movie that probably hasn't taken some cues from the way Steven Spielberg makes movies and like it feels like that in in the in the horror genre we just didn't get as much of that because it was so much harder to get films made and seen which has been less of an issue over the past ten years. Yeah, and you and, and to jump off something else you said, Sohiel, I think Aaron and I are very much those like horror hound people. Um, yeah, we do try to watch. I mean, we kind of save it for October, though. P- if you don't know, Peter and I, and maybe if you haven't listened to the show all that long, we get new listeners. Um, Peter and I do the thing where we try to watch 31 new to us horror movies every, every October. We report on it on this podcast. Uh Normally, 31 is like where we hit midway through the month. I think we've been getting in the 45, 50. Uh, Peter, I think you hit, almost hit 60. Uh, that's yeah, that's, that's watch list. That's watch list material, Peter. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but that'll never happen again, I don't think. Bar- bar- uh, barring my entire life falling apart, that'll never happen again. Uh, why we say we do it primarily in October is because by doing that, we uh, burn ourselves out on horror movies that we watch less throughout the rest of the year. <laughs> But yeah, we but essentially it's it's funny that this movie is about drugs because like very much uh I consider horror uh a a habit or an itch I have to scratch. Um where if I haven't watched like a horror movie in a week, I'm like that that feels it feels iffy to me. Even if it's a sort of over the plate as 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 we've we've just referenced kind of an over the plate um you know, slight riff on something you've seen a bunch of times. Um I I feel like I, I feel like I need to go satisfy that urge, uh, urge not intended, urge reference not intended. Um, but the uh, that is that is kind of who I am. Is I'm like uh, I'll reach points in my uh, my film going where I'm like you know I've watched a lot of very respectable. Uh, very heartfelt films that have made me feel uh, a, a a wealth uh, a, a depth of emotions. What I really need is something that I can like pump my fist at, um, and that's the value of movies like VFW for me. Is like that that itch is always going to be there, and sometimes very much like a drug, I need to scratch that itch. Sometimes, yeah, you, yeah, you need to get hyped. I need to get hyped. You gotta get hyped. You gotta be a hyper. I remember um, whenever they say whenever they reference hyping or getting hyped or hypers, I just think of the. Do you think it sounds fucking stupid? Uh, no, that's what they say in uh, Wolfenstein 3D when you're about to start a mission. It says, get hyped. Uh, oh, so what they meant is to take drugs. They meant take drugs and murder Nazis. How, yeah, I mean, uh, how else are you going to defeat Mecha Hitler? Not being on drugs? It takes meth to defeat meth. I, I do really like this type of low budget genre. We're going to take, we're going to do our riffs on the horror masters that we, um, that we were inspired by. Uh, and I'm saying that up front because we're probably going to talk a little bit, at least from my perspective, about why I don't think this was wholly a successful entry in that. Um, but, uh, I am excited to talk about. There is a lot to go through and, uh, since we're probably never going to do cheers on this show, because why would we? Because we're a movie <laughs> podcast. But uh, we get to see Norm drink beer, which is nice from Cheers. It's just comforting, really. It is. It, that's what yeah. I needed. And while while we're talking about that, I watched Bliss this week. And um, I was like, oh, well, Joe Bagos got some more money. So now he can get his big cast. That's And George went just like went like, well, I mean. It's X amount of dollars for a weekend away and I can act again. Maybe I'm, you know, maybe he's buddies with someone else in the cast. I assumed it was that sort of connection where it's just like either uh, there's act- there's actually no connection. It was just quick cash or like he's buddies with someone on in the cast because um, it's a stacked cast. I don't think we've referenced that. Um, but uh, <laughs> George Went was in Joe Bagos's last movie. Um, and they're kind of buddies. It's like the most elite, the least unlikely pairing, I think, between like what I consider George Wentz sensibilities to be from just Cheers and other shit like Cheers and what Joe Bagos' whole thing is. Interesting. Do you think he's got a George Wentz comeback vehicle in him? 
<laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Where I think this the- is it. Yeah, I think this this is it. <laughs> it didn't uh, go well. well, I mean, we know he turned out better than Cliff Clavin's uh, John, what, Ratzen- Ratzenberger? Ratzenberger, who, yeah. Who I guess became the more successful of the two and then also uh, a big tea party guy. So... Thank you, Pixar, for making him relevant. Damn, the, the yeah. extremely rich. That guy's a tea party guy? He was a Obama needs to show us his birth certificate guy. Yeah. He was in ads and everything. Anyways, sorry to... But George Went, who we'll be talking about today, is uh, good, as far as I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The only thing I have to say about George Went is that he's a charming presence. He's really great in that John Landis uh, Masters of Horror episode. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I, you know, I feel like <laughs> noted George monster went, John Landis. <laughs> yeah. We, no matter what, there's just monsters everywhere. Um, I, I feel like George uh, went out of this movie too soon. Yeah. It Should've was, it was sad stayed. when he became George gone. Yeah. Uh, George gone Peter, but not forgotten. Okay. We need to get out of this. Peter Seville. <laughs> you guys want to talk more about VFW? Absolutely. Yes. So he'll last chance to bail. Uh, I assumed it's already too late, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Guess who just got back today? The wild eyed boys that had been away. Haven't changed, had much to say. But man, I still think them cats are great. They were asking if you were around. Peter, you, you are you alternate taglines. Wow. Um, Space Cowboys, but for drugs. That was my joke at the end of last week's episode, I think. So I think that's just theft. Yeah, yeah, could it be. is Space Cowboy, but for but for us. Yeah, it's Space people. Cowboys, but they're boldly venturing into uh, a land of opioids and uh, hallucinogens. What if they're older but wildly more capable? Everyone <laughs> in assault on Precinct Thirteen. <laughs> they don't even need weapons when you got these guns. Uh, I was pointing to my fists, or, or my fists, which do not work on a podcast. Yeah, so, uh, uh, I was about to call it hype. Uh, VFW is about, uh, I don't think it's an alternate future. It feels like an alternate 1980s. I can quite get a read. Yeah, it's sort of a hobo with a shotgun thing where certain yeah. features are definitely, like, there's two characters in the movie that are definitely coded as, like, one's a millennial and one is either a millennial or, like, a Gen Z character. Um, uh uh-huh. And then one of, and then like the sort there's there's little moments where they seem to reference you know current times but like there's no references to Trump or any specific politicians or anything. No, their TV their TV is super old. I don't remember if there's there is there even a cell phone at any point in the movie. I don't think so. I'm sure Lou, the car salesman, has one. He's. Got I mean, it, but right? yeah, I don't. I didn't see anyone even like pulled out an old one. So it's like an, an indescript time from the '80s, or maybe they had to do that because uh, the person who owns the trademark on math wouldn't let him use it for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I thought the while I was watching it that the 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 time the time period being impossible to pin worked. Uh, very much in its favor because when you when you Agreed. when you step into one of those bars, what they're trying to do is recapture an old time period, and then someone takes out a cell phone, and they it kind of ruins the illusion. That's why they have the older yeah. the older TV. Um, that's why they have the, they when they make weapons, they're like it's like they're doing practical effects from an eighties movie. You know, like they're yeah. like uh, no one no one's calling an Uber in the in this world. Uh, it's all like <laughs> what you can create right there. 
And that's with very little electronic assistance. Exactly. You're so right. It's very tactile. It's very present. Uh, it's also in a time uh, before incandescent lighting. Uh, <laughs> God, this movie would look so fucking hideous if it was just under like fluorescent, uh, you know, post-hostile uh, mid-2000s horror movie lighting. It'd be the uh, ugliest movie of all time. <laughs> uh, we'll get there. Uh, so anyways, uh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so it takes place just uh, it's it, it's like an, an 80s movie that was maybe like two years in the future. But yeah, indescript time is, is the way right way to put it. And yeah, I really like that about it. But there's it a drug the opioid hi- crisis, but there's been lots of opioid crisis. Uh, yeah, there was a war between Britain and China over a, of, a certain opioid crisis. Yeah, a lot of so a lot of drugs have come and gone, but there's a new one hype, which is really I don't know what the word to describe it is, but it's kind of getting itself out there making itself known really well people are excited about it some word to describe that but that's what hype's doing uh, man. Have, have any of you tried hype oh yeah my my cousin did in college and he said it was you know it was kind of overhyped <laughs> <laughs> okay all right <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the winner we can move but on <laughs> hype is also definitely a movie drug like i was naming at the beginning of this episode i was naming movie dash video game drugs that yeah. i could think of off the top of my head dash book drugs i guess um and uh uh like all of them are kind of like they do what the, we need to do to make the characters act a certain way right like the drug is more about output i like the 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 like describing the world i like the opening scene where so the opening scene is the drug dealer who basically uh someone wants their hype and he has they haven't paid in a while and uh they end up giving them the hype but falling to their death and that kind of sets up that these these drug folks are no good um so we get into the the rest of the movie, uh, which is what a weird thing to say. We get into the next 85 minutes of the 90 minute movie, which uh, basically has it kind of starts with this. These drug drug people, drug drug ease, uh, drug dealers, and they kind of hang out in this uh, decrepit cl- uh, club that does look it does not look welcoming. Like if you are trying to bring in new hype users, I imagine that is difficult uh, because they're not really hiding the kind of dark dank misery of doing hype uh there's a moment where they uh he says like oh this is a bad scene we got to get out of here yeah. about to move their headquarters somewhere new so i get the sense that when they start a new like kind of like hype den yeah. um things are you know they're, they're probably shitty like we we've all met in parking lots to buy weed from somebody <laughs> like we've all like gone to like a crappy apartment to buy weed from somebody so like uh we get that part but um i, I you get the sense that the drug is so instantly addictive that like anywhere where more than a couple of these folks are hanging out the whole unit just kind of turns to shit Yes, it's kind of like Kimmy Gibbler's uh, parents on Full House, the way they say that they just trash the house and then move every five years. (laughs) (laughs) Kimmy Gibbler's parents were on hype. (laughs) I was curious what that venue was. Was it just an abandoned music venue? Was it a movie theater? I, I mean, it, it felt like a warehouse, but it had a balcony though, Mm -hmm. like a, a dramatic balcony. Um, but so they are, yeah, they're moving locations and one of, uh, one of the hype users steals all the hype. 
which which sounds like a great 90s hip-hop album <laughs> steals all the hype so we'll get back to to her now at, at this vfw that's close to that location there's a bunch of you know c- kind of people just coming in for their regular you know regular drink everyone knows the bartenders they all know each other you kind of picture a bunch of old uh not necessarily war buddies all of them but people that you know just kind of became became friends at this bar they're having their drinks. They're telling the stories. Meanwhile, uh, uh, a more uh, recent veteran from one of our recent wars stops in. They introduce himself. They be, kind of become friends. And all of a sudden, the power goes out after like 20 minutes of some character set up between them. Um, power uh, goes out and this uh, woman or this girl runs in. Uh, and things kind of go to shit pretty quickly where uh, there's – they realize that this uh, there's these people chasing um, the this girl, and through the process of this 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 quick fight, because there's some people attacking who they who they who the the VFW crew kills, um, they accidentally kill or they don't accidentally they purposely kill him, but they don't realize that one of them is the drug dealer's brother. So now you're setting up a situation where not only do they want the drug backs, there's a personal vendetta to make sure that all of these people in the VFW, these oldies as they call them, um, don't don't survive. Um, and so you have about 45 minutes of standoff between uh, the 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 drug dealer and the drug ease and uh, the people within the the VFW. Um, and one of the things that it really kind of does to mirror John Carpenter's assault on Precinct 13 in that in that movie, they were kind of, you know, relentlessly throwing themselves at the police station because of the blood pack that they had made to make sure everyone dies. And here they are on, you know, super math and being ordered around by the person who survives or who provides them that math. So that kind of gives the fast zombie without being zombie motif and this kind of thing of they're just going to keep coming and coming and coming relentlessly while they try to find uh, various um, weapons or things to use around the bar to protect themselves. Uh, this eventually gets to the end where essentially every person but uh, the girl and uh, why am I blanking on his name? Stephen Lang, Fred Williamson, they they get shot up a little bit, but end up uh, killing the drug dealer, running him over with a truck, and uh, that's essentially the end of the movie. They survive the assault. Um, so they only it de- make it as far as the parking lot. The, the movie is very much in the VFW hall. It's in the VFW hall. Uh, yeah, we should also mention, just for like setting up what kind of people we're rooting for throughout this movie, based on demographics alone, uh, mostly white old veterans uh these are all trump supporters that we're rooting for <laughs> we just noted like five minutes ago that this they don't exist in this reality <laughs> yeah but i'm just saying like you know who you're rooting for peter no and then there's these young millennials who clearly would like to go to work if the jobs weren't all destroyed by baby boomers and what do they have left to band together try to make a community and then create their own version of some you know capitalism because they saw their dads do it the boomers do the capitalism so they're doing capitalism with the drugs like they wanted them to and uh yeah they get so many of them get murdered by these trump supporters it's really There are it's you're, you're thinking of something that there's a lot of uncharitable reads to this movie that it's a, a strike back at the youth or that this is a movie about like uh, 
you know, uh, the, the baby boomer generation is finally standing up for itself. Like there's a lot of uncharitable reads you could pull from that. Um, but I will say if we're going to humor this at all, um, Stephen Lang hasn't voted since he voted for Nixon. Um, wow, you pulled up his voting record? Publicly available. <laughs> <laughs> if you know the right people, look up Citizens United. <laughs> um, William Sadler, uh, you know, Walter, he's he's kind of the dummy of the group, but he's like the sweet dummy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he probably did get suckered into voting for Trump, uh, at least the first time. Uh, Martin Cove is a huckster and a used car salesman. He probably voted for Trump. Uh, he absolutely Patrick voted Kelly for Trump. is a hippie. No way in fuck he voted for Trump. He's a Bernie guy. And uh, George Wendt, I feel like, is also a little bit of a dummy in this movie. I feel like he went to the voting booth on, like, the wrong day. And he was like, I'll just figure it out when I'm in the voting booth. And then he just, he went on, like, Wednesday or something. (laughs) Well, hopefully he didn't listen to Cliff Clavin. Yeah, no, I think this movie actually does appeal more to a youth audience. Because what what millennials and zillennials want to hear is Fred Williamson talk about having to remove pussy hairs from between his teeth. (laughs) That's for the kids. I mean, if that's... It's for the kids. It's for the kids. For um, all the kids. There, there's actually... What's funny is that is is when we're talking about the morals of these characters or, like, where they land, like, what I like about the movie is that they make them um, sympathetic characters, but they never have any sort of, like, weird scribes about, like, weird diatribes, I should say, about... Um, your generation versus my generation. There's just sort of a natural melding that happens between generations. And then there's like little compliments between Stephen Lang, who like, you know, becomes like the, <clears throat> the commanding officer and the two younger folks, uh, Lizard and Sean. Um, and like that sort of that sort of uh, gradual melding as the movie goes on is like far more charming than the movie trying to trying to figure out the generational divide in Trump's America and in 85 minute, you know, punch you in the yeah. face assault and precinct 13 movie. Instead, it's just like this is a kick ass movie where heads get stomped. And we do have to recognize the fact that these old dudes probably are not used to interacting with anybody under 40. Do the last thing I'll say that I'm only kind of serious about, but I do even though Martin Cove is obviously been a lot of stuff he plays the i couldn't quite tell if he was a lawyer or a car salesman yeah he's a car he's a car salesman salesman. okay i thought so but he looked so much like 80s charlton heston in this movie that i was like is he cast just because man it would be great if we get a charlton heston type in into the vfw movie uh, (laughs) about about punk kids that need to be killed I just think he. I just think all white people look the same, Aaron. That's that might be true. He didn't. He didn't remind you at all of Charlton Heston. I didn't get that. No. Um, he all right. A, well, we can move on. A, now that now that you mention it, I can see it though. I can see it. I can see it. But the thing about Charlton Heston is, even when he was doing smarmy, disgusting things like you know the, the NRA. Um, he never had a smarming, disgusting attitude or approach to it. No, like, I'm not. Yeah, he has the, just, that 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 like greasy suit kind of used car salesman vibe like throughout, and that that's a that's a whole different ball game to me. As we get into the parts about the movie that we want to talk about, I don't know. Maybe it's helpful, and we don't have to do it this way, Peter. We where I can talk about here's some things I really liked about it, and you guys can that assuming you agree go go off and talk about how yeah that stuff rules, and then I can talk about all the things I didn't like, and you guys can be like you idiot. Here's why you're wrong about that. Do you want do you want to do a little bit of that? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with you guiding, kind of guiding that part of the discussion. Okay. I think, I think we'll kind of need to bounce around with the fact that this is a though it's a very yeah, it's a fairly linear movie. The way that the um, particular character moments connect is not linear. Um, there's not like a scene, like I said before. There's not a scene where they like. This is the scene where we solved the generational divide. There's lots of like little moments that reward you paying attention throughout. Yeah. Um, so there's three main things that I just I really had a little bit trouble getting past in the movie. Um, and one actually surprised me that you didn't have a, and maybe you do have a little bit of a problem with this, Peter, because it's something that you talk about a lot on the show more than I do, which is creating a sense of space that you understand where everyone is at all times mm -hmm. and how important that is in, in horror movies. And I really got the impression, you know, that, that concept of like everyone just being in this bar was very appealing to me. I felt like throughout all the attack scenes that they felt really confined to what you see on camera uh, in that moment, not giving you a sense of what's happening throughout the bar. And as I started to notice this, I paid more attention to it. And there is there is almost nothing happening um, behind or around when like, OK, so this person is going to get choked by this person, the, the, this uh, hyper, right? One of our VFW here is going to get choked by the hyper. We don't always know where the hyper came from. We don't know their location in relation to everyone else. We don't know who could potentially save them. All of a sudden, he's right up at the bar next to him. He's choking uh, one of our heroes. And then suddenly maybe someone who was dealing with their own thing on another side of the bar 10 minutes ago comes out and saves them or he gets out himself. And I really felt like every action sequence was happening independently or like mini action moment uh, was happening independently of everything else going on. And it was really hard to get my bearings, which um, I think for a movie like this, that is so based on, Hey, these people are confined to a tiny area. They are under attack. The attacks are going to come from all sides. That it, it, it needs to have a better sense of of what exists in the space, so that you know, um, so that you can kind of know whether uh, like uh, being being saved is difficult. It, whether whether it was amazing that he got out of that. Whether um, there's more threats coming from that location. And, it, and again, it it felt like almost um, that if 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 the camera wasn't on it, that if that if you panned around, if the camera suddenly panned around 360, we would see an empty bar where no one else exists in any in any given moment. I I didn't get that sense at all, man. I mean, you did lay out pretty well what my kind of rubric for how um, an action movie should be shot, which is unless you're making an action scene that's purely about the chaos of the moment and it's purely about um, how confusing war can be. Like there's a, that great scene in Inglorious Bastards with the basement shootout um, that's kind of purposefully confusing. Um, because uh, you're seeing like little snapshots and snapshots of action and like these two characters are connecting and it's sort of getting you in the head of someone who did not expect to be in the middle of a firefight. I had, um, usually though, it's just incompetence that means that, uh, that you don't know what's going on. And this, I had a crisp, clear connection on where everyone was at any given moment. Um, I think they really 
they for a movie that's shot uh very dark and about a third i would say so so from acts two and three together i would say like a third of those total (laughs) a lot of math i know um uh is shot in that sort of red blue the powers out version and then they get the generator back on and then it's like a pretty well-lit bar um for those scenes i could see some confusion but what but like I, i think they did a really great job a making all these white guys dress differently in such a way and lighting their faces in such a way that they're very easily, um, you're very easily able to tell who is who, which helps you determine in B um, when they, they do a lot of two shots and coverage for where folks are at. And then when they do do like the chaotic, gross insert shots of William Sadler's boot coming down on a face, I'm like, I know exactly where I am because they just showed me William Sadler up against the door and there's only two entrances. So it's kind of interesting you say that because usually you and I agree if like an action scene is is garbage or not. Um, and I I thought the action in this was uh, really potent in terms of the gore. The gore added a lot of like, I know the word visceral is overused, but it added a lot of potency. Like So, yeah, the, I want to be the very clear. Of, I have no problem with the blades. Yeah, is is, is, uh, really, really helps sell how at any given moment anybody could get chopped up. So that part, we'll talk about that and stuff I really liked. I really did like uh, the sound design, the use of gore, the way that everything feels like it really hits really hard. And uh, the shotgun blasts in this movie sound amazing. Like, that's all good. It's like it's not that I have a problem with what's on screen. I have a problem with it feeling like it doesn't exist within the, the like I I didn't know where threats were coming from. I didn't know who could save them. People just felt like they were appearing in and out of frame, like some sort of avant-garde, you know, type type movie where whatever or like even a like that was kind of what uh, Leon was so good at, you know, but in a different con. In a different context where it felt like, um, you know, that people could kind of show if they weren't on camera, they didn't exist in like the good, the bad, and the ugly or once upon a time in the West or something like that. And that added to kind of the the way that he shot the movies where in such a confined space like this, uh, which is opposite of the way Leon did stuff, it really did feel like. Oh, is that person at risk? Could someone just save him? Isn't there some guy right next to him? Why isn't he doing anything? Which actually goes to the second part of this. And I feel like this is a little bit of an unfair criticism, but it's something that that I couldn't help but but I noticed and it, it stayed with me that right before any of those good, gory action sequences happen, whoever they're attacking is standing completely still. And and I get it, like, from a budgetary standpoint, like, they do amazing practical effects. Maybe it is hard to make the, the chainsaw cut through the person's head if, uh, if, you know, they just don't have the budget to kind of make it look like that person is chasing after him, then the chainsaw comes. But I don't know if they need to, like, cut 10 frames off of every cut to action sequence. But, man, it really got distracting the way, like, people would just be standing there and get shot. Like, they'd be chasing them, and then they'd be standing still, and an axe would go through them to make no, like, attempt to attack back. It was, uh, again, it this seems nitpicky, but in an action movie where this, where all these gory things happen each time, it did take me out of it for everyone to feel like they're paused for the special effect to happen to them. 
And I didn't have that uh, that sort of disconnect at all. Um, some of that also comes from the fact that there's a general sense of chaos. The movie is quickly edited. Um, and the fact that they're drug addicts, so they're supposed to be acting sort of erratically. Um, and there's also that thing that I think Jet Li called it noodle time, where sometimes people are standing off to the side, kind of waiting for their chance for Jet Li to kick him in the head. You know, Bruce Lee had the same thing because like watching Bruce Lee fight 10 people is not as interesting as watching Bruce Lee fight one or two people Um, because you want to be able to see and feel the impact of each kick. Right. Um, So like there's maybe a little bit of noodle time in there. I'm not sure. That's that's it's just very interesting because you and I usually have very uh, close takes on how action scenes feel. Um, we had a disconnect recently on whether or not the Thunderdome scenes in uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome were cool. But other than that, um, the, the, the yeah, I, I didn't I didn't connect that didn't that didn't happen for me. Um, and that's not to say that in a watch two for you, that wouldn't happen or that would that would still happen. And a watch two for me, I wouldn't be like, yeah, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, indie movie clunkiness here. But the. The indie movie clunkiness is something we can definitely talk talk about. Um, it's just that this movie has such a, uh, you know, sort of forward momentum cocaine energy that very often, like, what you're trading off for that that um, polish, you're getting with, like, stuff that they don't do in mainstream action movies. Um, yeah. But so yeah, we've, been, we've left so heel on the on the, on the bar <laughs> yeah. a lot. Uh, so what do you what do you make of the action scenes? Like, what do you draw from them? And you don't have to follow what the fuck we were talking about. But what what do you what do you what do you get out of it? Sure. I thought the action scenes were for the most part, I agree with Peter. I thought they were quite strong. Um, like if you asked me to draw you a map of the bar where the bar like the various rooms in the bar and the parking lot where the truck is in the parking lot um, and where the um, the hype den is in relation. I feel like I could do it fairly well because it, they established where everyone is and how far apart those spaces are, I thought, quite well. And I, and I enjoyed that it's a single setting movie for the most part. But, you know, you have the main bar, you have the bathroom. You have like the back area where that leads to the parking lot. You have the parking lot and they, they sort of chopped up that location into as many, many locations as they could so that during those action, those um, scenes where people are storming the bar, it's like five scenes at once. So, like it's a low budget movie, but it feels like you're watching like a Lord of the Rings action scene where there's like a hundred people <laughs> fighting at the same time. Um so the the ingenuity of like using this the single location to create this like the feeling of a huge action sequence that lasts probably over half the movie. Um, I thought it was quite well done, and the um, and I'm I, I, I was curious about what you're saying about the different um, uh, locations. I I wonder, do you think that your problem would be solved? Um, if let's say there were more shots that sort of led you from one location to another, because I felt like the locations were kind of chopped up into their own, like, and and isolated, like the camera didn't often go from the front to the back to the parking lot. So I actually didn't have a problem with uh, the locations as a whole. I agree that that's laid out. Well, what I meant is that like when the action sequences themselves are happening, it feels like they're happening in isolation of everything else. So 
it's not that like so let's say there's that you know there's the side door there's the window there's the the main door when they were under siege where these action sequences were happening individually when they were like being attacked uh, by someone I enjoyed all that I thought that was well done but where they were in relation to all the other characters they're the only two in frame and sometimes it would be like well now I'm showing the scene um, I'm showing a scene where in theory the fight I just saw should be right behind it because I feel like I know the space decently well but they're gone you would only see the two people that were fighting in that instance um, at the time. And after a while, it really did have a disorienting effect where it felt like I never knew where threats were in relation to what I was seeing on screen. I never knew where um, I never knew where the potential for safety, what other fights were going on. It, it And I think that's just I think both of my my um, my these things that I'm saying that kind of really took me out of the the action sequences and really took me out of I think the movie to a to a to a degree that I was even surprised myself by was because it was just in these in these situations where they're defending this small area I need to know how they're doing at defending that small area I need to know what's happening all around I need to know what where where all the different players are or have a, g- a general sense and instead what it felt like to me is oh they're under attack I see a bunch of close up cool action sequences that feel a little more staged than I would like but once they get going they're uh they're they're compelling and then I cut to another another uh, individual close-up scene. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I guess we're done. We, be- we beat it. it. It it didn't feel like I knew where where the stakes were, how many more people they had to defeat, where everyone else was. That That's kind of what I'm talking about. And that, that chaos to control mix is so crucial for these movies. Because yeah. um, when fight scenes feel too sterilized... Um, sure there's like that Suzuki movie uh, pistol opera or a lot of Suzuki movies have that sort of like very much like a um, uh, camera points at character gun shoots uh, guy falls down that's sort of like crisp cleanness that has like an art movie appeal but for an action movie where you're going for visceral like like I said like a, a like cocaine little thrill um, you want the chaos, uh, the chaos uh, knob to get turned up a little bit. And what's interesting about this movie is, uh, so he'll said that something really, really good, which is like I know where everything is in the bar. There's sort of that front entrance, and then there's the side entrance, which is like the warehouse door, mm-hmm. and then there's no windows, basically. Yeah, um, which is uh, my they, experience. The guy these, did like sort of the, dive bars and VFW halls yeah. and shit. When I worked in politics, we used to like go to these VFW halls. Like very often, there's like there's like more open air halls sometimes, but very often it's just like. It's a tight little bar. There's no windows. The closest you get to like uh, light is if like uh, some guy opens the the front door. Um, and that those two entrances, if if the movie was had the the, the dial cranked down too far, to uh, you know in sort of chaos to control. Um, those two entrances, it would feel so boring. It would feel like the like in a video game where you're just shooting down a hallway waiting for, you know, something exciting to come up. Um, it would feel like a corridor shooter. But the fact that they add, they imbue a little bit of chaos, guys run in past and run behind everybody and uh, jump over the bar and, and like the, 
when you actually see a shot of the bar, there's kind of really limited entrances. And so adding in a little bit of chaos makes it all feel more dangerous. Yeah. So I guess what you're describing, though, doesn't really happen in the movie um, in that, like, I, I'm fine with the chaos of like, oh, there's so much happening at once in a small thing. And I don't want to stick on this point too long. It's just, again, I get this. This was the this was what those two things combined with, I think, a cinematography I didn't like. I know that you really liked it, Peter. We, we can get into that. Um, uh, made um, made that like when a, when, a, when an action sequence is happening, like a very uh, compartmentalized, like this guy is attacking this guy. There's no one else in frame. Like, the whole chaos of what's happening at the bar is nowhere to be seen behind. There's not even, like, a glass flying in the background. And then it cuts to, it cuts to like, the next little compartmentalized action sequence. And there's they're, they're the only ones that exist in that frame as well. You'd never really get, like, a wide shot of everyone's relation to each other. There's no one really popping in that's not focused on the frame into the other one. And it really gave me this sense of something, like, I used to see a lot in, like... You know, in like student movies, which is like, it's not like we can choreograph everything going on or really even have the ability to do a wide shot. So I'm going to go threat, threat, giant action sequence, and then I'm going to hyper zoom in on each individual encounter, and then it's just going to be over. And that was the the sense I got from it throughout. Yeah, um, it's it's just funny how much of uh, sort of uh, film action is this sort of subjective dance. Like, yeah. there's this sort of like uh, beautiful dance, and the chaos either makes because because film is obviously a language. Like, not to be all film one hundred and one, but like film is a language, and if like that language and it's a western, speaking, and it's a western. Um, if that language isn't speaking to you, though, like. I, I can't make you speak that language, yeah. right? Like, it, it's just how, how this stuff works. But I also do contend that uh, it's a sort of experience where, like, the novelty of it and um, sort of knowing the beats and the stakes of it can kind of act in, um, in opposition to one another. And what I mean by that is, like, um, the first time you watch it, you get a hype, you get a thrill, <laughs> you get a little bit of high, Um and you can kind of follow that through some of the, the clumsiness of it. But the um, the second time you watch it, if, if you weren't particularly a fan, you can also get like, okay, the scene makes more sense to me now that I have the context of where this fits in the, in the you know, the overall part of the movie. Um, so it's just interesting how that film language can kind of dance with one another. And I'd be curious if what either of us would think in like a year and a half. Yeah. And to put a little bow on it, would it remind, I guess, the best way to like, from a metaphor of what I'm trying, I've now spent 15 minutes trying to maybe not articulate too well. It's, do you remember like the, that, what was it? The fourth season of Arrested Development where, people based on timing shot a lot of their scenes where they were supposedly in the same frame together or the same scene together, but they weren't. Yeah. 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 That is what I got from a lot of the action sequence in these movies. Like when it was hyper-focused on, um, on you know uh on on why am i forgetting all the rest of george michael and his and uh his dad um it's like okay yeah they're in the scene together and then all of a sudden someone else would like you'd focus on them talking it's it's all two shots it's all two shots and rarely a wide shot and when and that's that was and it kind of makes you focus on that more than what's going on so that's i i did get that sense from a lot of the movie and like i said i think also the I know they do get a generator on, but I really felt like the 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 cinematography and the darkness and the the just 
an hour of that red and blue light was a little bit droning for me. So that's all the stuff I didn't like. We are we love to watch. I let's I want to get back and then you guys can talk about stuff that you really liked. I really liked the we mentioned the sound design and the special effects. The practical effects here are if they if they if they didn't use their budget for wide shots in my perspective, they put every cent they had on the practical effects here and they are amazing. Yeah, so Heal, what do you think of like the the jibby, like just big fucking squibby jibby, like uh, blood packs exploding as people stomp in fake versions of fake heads? Like, what 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 did you make of all that? Did it give an impact to you, or did it feel like gratuitous? Um, I mean, I thought it was fun for the most part. I I didn't really. I thought it was really odd that it um where they had that huge gore moment in the first five minutes. And then um, yeah. just as like a, it felt like a... With the axe, right? Um, I'm talking about when the girl falls and um, oh, yeah, yeah. explodes, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, then, and then it turns into a movie about like a very, um, I thought like a very uh, effective uh, depiction of like old boomers at the bar, like... Um, just grasping at moments from their past, but then I thought maybe like the director was like, "Oh yeah, let's let's throw in a huge gore moment right at the very beginning, so to give the viewers an idea of what's 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 going to come down the line." So I remember when that woman exploded in the first few minutes, I was like, "Oh, that was when my fears of the movie were probably." I was like, "The fears <laughs> of, that I had of what this is going to be are about to happen," where it's just just like. People are going to explode because uh, why not, you know. Um, but then it um, once we had the, that first act um, uh, with those guys and that particular cast is just so effective together. Like that made um, like all the gore beats and all, um, all of that that came later. I mean, I was just along for the ride at that point. But um, um, and for the most part, I don't know, the... Um, you, these sorts of movies occupy a specific space, you know. Um, it's it's not a coincidence. I don't think that drugs are often mentioned uh, in the world of these movies because they're kind of designed to be watched on drugs. And um, <laughs> that is not how I watched this movie. But I can imagine if that were the case, uh, those like huge gore moments would be super satisfying, super fun. And, uh, and those action scenes, I don't think I would be... Um, I don't think I, the, the typical viewer in the, like the intended state that they are in is going to care that much about like the spatial relations of the characters. Um, um, so within, you're saying this is a movie, uh, about hype for hypers. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I guess, I don't know. Hype, you might be kind of tough to sit down and watch a movie, um, if you were on hype, but, um, you know, uh, if by hype you mean, um, you know, medium grade edibles from California, um, then, uh, <laughs> that you take an hour before you get to the theater. Yes. Um, that seems like the intended yeah. way to view this movie. That, I, it does make me sad, though, that this movie was robbed of its... Um, there's lots of amazing films that are getting robbed of their proper theatrical due right now. Um, and this this is one of them. I'm not saying it's the greatest crime. Um, but this is one of those... Because, honestly, this movie will live on, I think, um, on uh, 
drunk people's couches. Um, you get a bunch of you get a bunch of friends together. Um, you're like, all right, this movie's nuts. Let's let's watch it together. Uh, whoever goes to the fridge, make sure you grab four beers when you're there. <laughs> that kind of night. Yeah. Like, it'll live on in that. But the fact that I didn't get to see this in a theater and have that sort of um, big crowd reaction to the gore. Yeah. <clears throat> and, like, people laughing at weird times and people screaming at weird times. Like, that sort of visceral... <clears throat> That sort of visceral, intense reaction that you get with a crowd, particularly like a half inebriated crowd, is is um, something that's. It's really sad this movie is going to miss out on that. And if this movie ever gets uh, sort of um, released in a, um, you know, uh, what's the term, like a, a sort of like a horror marathon, or we we get some sort of like a, after. Uh, the uh, corona lockdown like a retrospective screening or something yes a retrospective thing like where we get a bunch of horror movies all playing and it's supposed to be sort of like a fun party atmosphere at certain theaters i know here um like hell yeah i'm I'm gonna be there because i want to see i wanted to see this movie with a group and though i had a great time like drinking some beer and like watching it by myself um this feels like a movie that would have been really fun to watch with, like, you two guys. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a few movies. Um, there's another one that I was quite excited to see that um, that I know was supposed to have a theatrical release at Alamo called Porno, um, made by oh, yeah. made by some people I know who graduated from the Columbia program. And um, that's another one that seems like... Uh, I know a lot. A number of filmmakers were like, "This is their moment," and then suddenly it's like, "Okay, now they're having conversations about how much to charge for it on iTunes." Um, for, yeah, and it's just a whole different thing now. Yeah, I had tickets to go see. I still haven't seen. It. I know it just became available. Uh, Extraordinary, which um, which felt like the perfect type of movie to see. With like, hey, I don't know if this is going to be funny. It's always a risk with these comedies. Especially a supernatural comedy, but Will Forte's in it, and it looks pretty funny. If I go see an opening weekend at, like, a theater, you know, the that's the best, like, situation where I can get the most laughs out of it. I can have a drink. It'll be good. And, yeah, it was one of the – it was that and, and The Invisible Man were the two movie <laughs> tickets that I had to, like, refund on Fandango. <laughs> so, FYI, if anyone needs $20 on Fandango, I – Took the credit like an idiot, uh, <laughs> thinking I'd be able to use. Thinking there will be theaters again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So my other, I don't want to get into big criticisms, but one of my, I, I wish the villain, like the the VFW gang, is so compelling and so good. I kind of wish that they had a villain to match. And I know, you know, it's it's hard to be like, hey, get someone as compelling as Stephen Lang and Fred Williamson with this budget to be your villain. But my note is that I, I meant to write, I wish the villain was more compelling Jesus Christ. Um, and I accidentally put an A in there, so it says, I wish the villain was a more compelling Jesus Christ. And I agree with that statement quite a bit. I wish the villain of this movie was Jesus Christ of Nazareth, but more compelling. No, I would agree with you on that. I think that... Um, why, it wasn't like every time that the villain was on screen, I just tuned out or it, it felt like a huge drop in tension. But um, to a certain extent, this movie is, is sort of goes on that stunt casting. And I kind of just wanted it to why, like, why didn't they cast Haley Joel Osment? 
You know, like why didn't they stunt yeah. cast that role too with someone who you who you're like, oh that guy, you know, because every other yeah. every VFW character is an oh that guy uh, actor. And it's like was, they cast a David Tennant impersonator, <laughs> but not an actor. That guy, because that guy was, I think, a straight over the plate. You know, he nails a few lines pretty well, but he's just he, he, uh, you're right up against these guys that have history and they have bite. There's two routes they could have gone. One is they cast somebody that that people respect, but, um, you know, maybe would have been kind of buried in it. Like, you know, the guy kind of looks like Jeremy Davies and he would have done a better job in the role. But like, you yeah, know, agreed. They, they, they cast Jeremy keep, Davies. They, they I think they smartly do the thing that they do in Assault on Precinct 13. Just less of that, which means more of him. Um, that was a confusing sentence. Um, but in, in Assault and Precinct 13, you essentially get no you get no dialogue scenes from the uh, the baddies from what is it called? Street Thunder. The, yeah, but they're super compelling in their evilness. They're completely silent. And there's a whole scene introducing them and their evilness, which happens in this movie. There's a really great scene where he just says, like, you know, if you want the drug, go get it. And he throws it off a balcony and she follows. Um, that's a, that's a similar sort of scene. It obviously, it doesn't have the same impact as killing a child, but it introduces you to to what the movie is at is is at play with, um, and I so I don't think like the, the the trick would have been casting yeah like a Jeremy Davies the 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 trick would have been either to cast another old pro, like a fucking Lance Henriksen or somebody, um, or like like so Heel said like a uh, fucking Haley Joel Osmond or so, someone that you like just wouldn't expect like a crazy a crazy casting choice you let that actor go off for like three scenes and then that actor can like get out at the end of the weekend right like, yeah I, I think that actor's I agree not with, in the movie that much no I agree with all of your selections because you've named a lot of people that um, I think qualify for what I'm looking for in the role which is a good actor He's fi- he's he's fine. He actually nails a lot of like the more ominous scenes where he's like he's peering <laughs> through that hole. And he's yeah, if he did, agree. Like he he's got a good look. He's got a good uh, '80s drug dealer. He's just an over the plate kind of guy. He looks like he could go to like where uh, the Foot Clan resides in the 1990 Ninja Turtle movie and be like, "You want some cigarettes? <laughs> <laughs> Master Shred is gonna go teach." Like he could do that. I think. Probably pretty well. He wears the cut off sweats. Like I forgot that would how much be fun. The original movie, uh, the original Ninja Turtles movie, is about um, uh, uh, drawing in uh, troubled youths and getting them hooked on cigarettes. <laughs> you like video games and cigarettes? <laughs> Welcome to the Ninja Turtle movie. <laughs> uh, and Christopher Maloney's like, no way. I'm going to go have a really boring 40-minute interlude with the character that plays April O'Neil. I honestly think if this was set in the same universe as the Ninja Turtles and all the people were on hype were those kids who were stealing TVs and, and, and smoking cigarettes, I think a little bit of a better movie. But I think it, the, it was fairly effectively mimics movies from that exact time period. Um, yeah. Strangely enough, I watched uh, the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles over the last week on Netflix Party, which is an activity I highly recommend. Um, and yeah, That's like amazing. as I was watching um, VFW, you know, um, the, from the cinematography to the score to the set design, um, uh, like if this were just on, if it were on an older TV, like let's say you're at a bar, you know, back in the day and uh, they're, they're having a movie on and you have no idea 
what movie it is, but it's like on an older TV, I would be like, oh, that yeah. might be a movie from 1989. And I thought it, it was I, one of the key things a movie like this, I think, is trying to do is like be a well executed piece of nostalgia. And I think it did that pretty well. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I, uh, I'm i trying to think. Uh, yeah, I, I really think that the win here is is having a compelling cast of like recognizable older ca- uh, um, uh, character actor type people. Can we go through that cast, by the way? Because there yeah, are some people. Valuable use of time. Stephen Lang is the lead. And Stephen Lang is amazing. You may know him from Tall Tale. <laughs> we know him from everyone's favorite film avatar yeah. the film that's famously well remembered you don't remember from tall tale he's the dad he's like go talk to pecos bill and paul bunyan <laughs> <laughs> john henry will save us from this this uh railroad tycoon <laughs> uh what else happens in this film tall tale you never seen tall tale no i haven't so it's got a crazy cast. Oliver Platt plays Paul Bunyan. Um, uh, 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 what's the? Why am I blank? This is the, the late at night thing. Roadhouse. Uh, Patrick uh, Swayze. Oh shit! I have seen this movie, the Disney movie. Yeah, yeah, I have seen this movie. I mean, not yeah, since but I was four. Stephen <laughs> Lang is is the father of the kid Jonas who gets Hackett. injured. Yeah, the kid played by uh, what's his name? Stahl. Nick Stahl, so second John Connor. Yeah, Nick Stahl. And it's Patrick Shavey, Oliver Platt, Stephen Lang is his dad. Scott Glenn is the evil uh, railroad baron. And uh, Stephen Lang's like, I'm not going to sell my land. (laughs) Um, But then... uh, Does he sell his land? He does not because he gets injured. Mm. And so they think that Scott Glenn's going to steal the land. And then, uh, yeah, Nick Stahl has to protect him by going. And his, his Stephen Lang's like, by the way, Pecos Bill's real. Go find him. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, this- so, so they find Pecos Bill. And Pecos Bill's like, well, we got a real problem. We got to find my friend Paul Bunyan and John Henry. So then they get those people. And yeah, they do. They use their magic tall tail powers and stop Scott Glenn's railroad. Although temporarily we should say eventually all that goes away and modernization does come <laughs> and all the tall tales are forgotten. Uh, so the railroad does succeed is, is what you're saying. Ultimately not in the movie, but I'm just saying like from a historical standpoint, yeah. eventually. Yes. Uh, it uh, seems they... pretty close there. The way you were telling that story, it seemed like it could go either way. Yeah, I think uh, when we release this episode, it should be a double, where it says VFW <laughs> slash Tall Tale. Slash VFW, because we need to end on VFW. <laughs> yeah. Um, All right, that's that's the Tall Tale recap. Check it out. It's you. probably on Disney Plus now. Thank you. I, I love it. Uh, this movie does, that movie does have a stacked cast, apparently. Um, so Stephen Lang, yeah, like you're, what, you're, what you're getting at, Aaron, is that like Stephen Lang has played uh, sort of like hard bruising, uh, like... Uh, tough guys in genre movies for a long time he was in tombstone like that's probably like where people know his face from a lot uh, recently, most recently though don't breathe is the one where i feel like everyone's yes. like oh yeah stephen lang don't breathe was the one that that guy ever- could be a murderous rapist yeah yeah it, it, stephen lang essentially has this um he apparently was on that into the badlands show nobody watched um but he he's the sort of guy who like you could throw him in a western you won't recognize him behind the beard but you make him the lead 
and you're going to be shocked with the results, right? Like he's he's amazing in his like three scenes in Avatar, but who could be remembered to remember anything about like the military guys in Avatar, right? Like that's not something you think about when you think about Avatar, but you put him in the lead and don't breathe and you're like, oh yeah, that guy was terrifying. And in a similar sort of effect in this movie, the sort of mix of warmth and terror um, that happened with Stephen Lang's character in this is wonderful. And I don't think they overplay the dramatic hand here. There's like one, you know, getting drunk in the bathroom scene that's not as good as the one in Mandy, admittedly. Um, Nowhere near. There's one really good getting drunk in the bathroom scene where you're like, oh yeah, Stephen Lang's a real fucking actor. And they told him like, hey, you're going to shoot the small scene with this, with this, uh, with this lady, with Lizard. Uh, I just remembered her name. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, it's going to be a big dramatic scene. You're not going to mash, mash anyone's uh, head in with a baseball bat. And he was like, yeah, absolutely. Just tell me where's the script. Like that, that sort of, uh, that sort of ability to do everything is why we fall in love with character actors. So Stephen Lang, uh, also a part of my childhood, not just from Tall Tale, but I forgot that he's in uh, the movie Gettysburg, the four and a half hour Civil War reenactment movie. That you've um, seen twice? I've seen more than that. I saw it three times in theaters, Peter. In theaters. Isn't he also in Gods and Generals? Yeah, he played a different character in Gods. Exactly played- what I was saying. You don't necessarily notice him when you when you when he's behind the gray beard and like barking orders at cowboys, but <laughs> he played yeah, he played the picket from Pickett's Charge. And the reason I saw Gettysburg three times in theaters when I was ten was because it was playing at a theater two blocks from my house and it was the only thing playing. So I went because it was back when you could just have a one screen theater yeah. and it was Ray PG, so I kept seeing Gettysburg. <laughs> you saw Gettysburg and- for the same reason we all huffed paint in high school. <laughs> I guess, yeah. I was a little younger for, but yeah, he has the famous line from Gettysburg uh, after Pickett's charge, which historically, as you guys may know, goes poorly. Where he's like, "General Pickett, get your men." He's like, "General, I have no." <laughs> <laughs> Can we make this a triple episode VFW Tall Gettysburg, <laughs> and then we'll move on? Yeah. Yes, yes. So, I, uh, so he's never going to come back. <laughs> I apologize. I feel like I, I stumbled into. Um, watching VFW in maybe the best way and that I did not look up the cast before. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. That's that's the way to do it. Norm was a surprise. Yeah, Norm, I was like, oh, hell yes. Um, Jerry from Twin Peaks, uh, David Patrick Kelly. Uh, yeah. Have you guys seen Twin Peaks season three? Oh, yeah. He's essentially playing right. the same character as Twin Peaks season three, which yeah. I don't know if that's just what he's <laughs> like now or if that's... Uh, uh, it was like an homage to season three. I don't know, but he, he essentially plays that a similar um, uh, Bernie or bust uh, stoner guy. Um, <laughs> um, and, and while we're there real quickly, he was in the Warriors and this very much feels like a, a Walter Hill. Movie. Absolutely. He Keep was going. not in Gettysburg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Stephen Lang, I, I thought he was quite compelling in the movie. His, he does a lot with his that growl voice, which can be menacing or it can be very like, you know, I'll come here, I will protect you sort of fatherly, depending on how he modulates it. I basically know him as the bad guy from Avatar. Um, and I... <laughs> and I... It made me wonder... Well, we gave you some new reps. Yeah, it made me wonder how how is it that the man who is the villain in the highest grossing movie of all time for many years uh 
is uh, like, does he need to fire his agent or something? Like, because like I've I've not seen this guy in. Yeah, anything. he's not as big as like lead of Avatar Sam Worthington is to. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. I could not have told you. I think you they've his all name. just been shooting Avatar since then. Um, and, yeah. and he had the fortune. Uh, Stephen Lang had the fortune to be dead at the end of Avatar. So. <laughs> they might bring him back. There might be a flashback or something. I think he is back. I remember seeing a cast list, and, and he was. Yeah, I think he's I'm back. Glad that was a late in the game decision because otherwise we would have been robbed of Don't Breathe and VFW and yada yada. Mm-hmm. The one that I'm hoping that we that I definitely wanted to touch on though is uh, William Sadler, aka the Grim yes. Reaper from Bill and Ted. Hell yeah! Which I had to look that up afterwards because I was like, I know that guy. I had the exact experience I was referring to, which was, I was like, oh, that guy. Why do I recognize his face? But it was, I mean, obviously the 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 makeup and everything makes it so he didn't he doesn't look like the grim reaper but just like his there was something about his face the whole movie and his voice i was like it's it looks so familiar and i don't know there's every single um i haven't seen the karate kid movies in forever but martin cove i believe is in multiple of the karate kid movies as well too so i I mean to me it's just i'm guessing that's where the budget went um is to get to create this sort of perfect nostalgia machine where you're making a movie that sort of mimics the movies of the late 80s, early 90s, and you get all these, every single key role is populated by a guy who you loved from that era um, to one degree or another. Um, You know, Walter Hill, uh, John Carpenter, they're getting referenced a lot in this film. The synthy score that they pop in is clearly yeah, great like, score. Good clearly, score. Clearly, it's feeling that sort of John Carpenter minimalist vibe. Um, but uh, I, I think this movie does owe a debt to like Bill Lustig and like the the, the Maniac Cop kind of era because um, it does feel way trashier than what John Carpenter put on screen. John Carpenter, like if you watch Halloween again, um, you watch even like Prince of Darkness, which is like also like a siege-ish movie. Um, it, that movie's not super gory. Um, it's kind of the yeah. Thing. Carpenter was known for movie. intensity and minimalism, but not necessarily gore. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it gets confused because he made the best gore movie of all time. Can we talk about really quickly a member of the cast that I, I uh, I'll only uh, I will probably recognize um, Graham Skipper. So he's uh, he's the brother that gets killed at the beginning. Uh, what's interesting about him, and I just want to note this really quickly, if you do go back and watch more Joe Bagos movies, you'll actually recognize him because he's essentially the lead in the first two, and then he's a key character, like maybe number three in uh, in uh, Bliss. Uh, oh, I know him. Um, I didn't recognize him in this movie, but um, he's in uh, Beyond the Gates, which is another fun throwback Um like uh 80s movie yeah i think of him as like making blair um but he uh he was actually the reason i'm saying this so this is specifically for friend of the show brandon leday uh in that movie he looks almost exactly like friend of the show brandon leday and i sent him a picture (laughs) of it like thinking that he liked the movie for some reason and he hadn't seen i'm like no wonder you like this movie and recommended it uh you're in it (laughs) <laughs> and I send him a picture and he's like, oh, cool. But yeah, I didn't recommend that to you. I'm like, oh, okay. 
<laughs> Bye. Bye. Uh, Aaron. Uh, but yeah, Bye. Graham Skipper's Graham Skipper's great. He's a, he's a, he's a great sort of uh, up, uh you know uh, indie horror guy. Mostly does horror, but I think of him almost as uh, as Joe Bagos's Macon Blair, um, where uh, the he he started all of his early movies, and then eventually uh, uh, Jeremy Selnier and. Uh, Joe Bagos both got a little bit more money and that guy got relegated to like a side role, but he's still, you know, he's still throwing his old friend uh, a nice role to get uh, the shit murdered. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, it, I, I just wanted to call out Graham Skipper while we're talking about the cast because it not ju- it, it, it doesn't just have uh, old legends. It also has like new cult horror figures um, and, you know, Joe Bagos and him sort of helped create Graham Skipper as a as a Joe as a sort of cult horror figure together. Mm, interesting, yeah. And the one thing I wanted to say about the cast also is that, um, speak, uh, referring to what you were talking about earlier, Aaron, with you feel like the action scenes are sort of happening in isolation. Um, you know, I, I'm not the accountant on the movie. I have no idea where the budget went. But if the idea was that okay, we get this actor for three days, this actor for three days, this actor for three days. And so this is the only way that they could afford the movie is to have it in that sort of two shot sequence where it's like, okay, now there's the scene behind the bar. Now there's the scene in the bar and we can shoot that on separate days and we don't need to have all the actors there. Um, that's how we can afford to make this movie. That's a trade-off that I'm willing to make to see these guys fight off a bunch of meth heads at a VFW. Yeah. I think that's a fair point. So one thing that as we're talking about the movie, it's like going up in my estimation. I did just watch it two nights ago. Um, I think this is not always a good way to view movies. And again, I I didn't hate it. Like I thought it was like a two and a half, three star movie. I enjoyed a lot of it. It just wasn't something that I I really loved. But um, not to invoke a show that I ultimately really dislike. But if, for those of you guys that watched How I Met Your Mother, there was that thing about once you know someone's tech, you can't unhear it um, or can't unsee it. And it starts to bother you more than um, is probably worthwhile because it, it's easy to stay something under the radar. Do you know what I'm – you guys? did you guys ever watch that show? I don't know. I did not watch that show, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm familiar with the idea. Yeah. That once you see it, yeah, it's, it's that idea of the glass shattering and now you can't unhear it or see it or whatever it is. I feel like once I kind of got that – and maybe it's just because I saw – so many movies when I did when I did made a lot of short films and was in you know uh, when I was in college and stuff like that and saw a bunch of other people's short films where you just kind of recognize like oh this is this is done because of uh, it, it's a it's an inelegant solution to a problem that understandably a student film can't overcome. I don't have the ability to to put on this what I would see in a normal movie and that's why it kind of feels like a student film and and in a movie which sometimes is fine in a movie that has so many action sequences like this and is in such a confined space and I want to feel like I understand what's going on in the entirety of that space to some extent as these things go on it just was that glass shattering that every time I saw the Okay, that person's paused to get stabbed or shot, and now, oh, we're cutting to two other people, and I don't know what's going on in the rest of it. It probably stood out to me more than – again, you – Peter, I was actually surprised that you didn't notice it because, as you as you said, you're the space hound, which normally has a different connotation of our, of our show <laughs> and are always very concerned about the way horror and action uses its space. Um, and, yeah, it, it just one of those things that kind of like – 
you know, triggered me a little bit in that, like, I couldn't unsee it. And it became a more and more frustrating part of the movie that I was trying to enjoy. But uh, I it's it's. Uh, it's definitely a movie that I would see other movies by the by Joe Bongos and um, and that like I don't have anything like against it. Like I really was rooting for it. I really like the aesthetic. I really like the actors. I really like the idea of the VFW under siege from drug addicts like a uh, uh, old person as assault on precinct thirteen. Um, it just at least in my watch, it it felt like it didn't fully work for me. Mm-hmm. It's interesting when you when you describe the movie in that um, in that way at the very end. Uh, it made me think of a movie quite recently about um, that came out last year about some older, let's say, slightly over the hill guys whose home gets invaded by some drugged out people and they get brutally murdered. Uh, that would be Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, but for a movie like that, that seemed potentially much easier for the viewer to like come away with a reactionary reading of that how the last scene unfolds this was a movie that i feel like was just too good-hearted to be making any sort of objectionable statement um like on on paper it seemed like it was going to be a movie about like you know these fucking millennials man or it was going to be making fun of boomers uh, where it ends up not really doing either where it takes its absurd premise fairly naturalistically where you know there's like one i'm getting a little old for this shit type of line but for the most part it doesn't lean into like the space cowboys stupidity of like they're old or the the millennials are on their phones all the time or whatever um it takes its it takes the absurd premise um um in like a weirdly humane way that i thought was was pretty compelling yeah, I think I think that's one hundred percent right. I will say though, I do now want to see the Space Cowboys version, the real one of this, where the entire time they're just like, "Can you believe we're we're under siege?" You know, because we're so old. <laughs> so, Hill, you nailed how I feel about it, which is some of that might come from the fact that sort of like sweetness and love of character comes from the fact that Joe Bagos is clearly like stoked to work with all these guys. Um, and busted his ass to make it happen. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it also becomes, it's also because he's just a, and is the reason I followed him since the beginning. Um, I can forgive filmmakers, early filmmakers who, um, sort of have shitty gore or there's a roughness to the picture like maybe they don't they don't really have a sense of their visual styling and like i can be like oh yeah yeah that's fine they're they're figuring out their style the thing that really makes me attached to sort of up-and-coming filmmakers or possibly up-and-coming filmmakers like joe bagos a few years ago was that like he has a really great sense of character and even when the performances feel a little stiff or whatever um he's really like focused on having these moment-to-moment interactions that make you understand group dynamics that make you understand the history of these two characters and like even if that history is a little clunkily laid out this movie is not subtle uh i don't think this movie could ever be accused of being subtle that literally the, the there's a scene um opening in the opening of the movie when um stephen lang is picking up fred williamson and, and um fred williams says fred williamson says like oh you're your old shitty truck and stephen lang says you know it's old but it's still running and fred williams said Fred Williamson literally says, like, yeah, it's like us. They're old, but still running. Old, but still running. Yeah. (laughs) And, like, 
that is that is the movie's level of subtlety right there. It's telling you off the bat, like, if we have something to say, we're going to say it. So if the movie did have comments about boomers or millennials or Gen Z kids or how this generation's so fucking soft, you better believe the movie would have had a diatribe halfway through, right? But it doesn't. The only the closest thing it gets to that is a comedic moment between the cast and crew about how um, women used to not shave their their vaginas and now they do or they get laser treatment. Like that's kind of that joke. I didn't, I didn't realize the crew was also in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about how much it rules to see these uh, old legends um, deliver these lines, but they're sort of but they're like fairly unsung legends um and i feel like that's yeah. a that's a big part of the charm here i mean there there are how much of a degree how many degrees of difference are there between this and the expendables you know where it's just like here's just a bunch of dudes from action movies from the 80s and we're gonna get them all together um like on paper they sound not dissimilar but like the act of watching the the something like the Expendables and something like this could not be more different. Yeah, there's sort of like a. I mean, George went to sort of the comic outlier, but there's there's the more sung, more recognized action movie versions of these guys out there. And this movie is is specifically, yeah, it's about unsung heroes, but it's also this movie is about underdogs, even though they perform fucking uh, like incredible acts of violence pretty quickly. Um, the uh, William Sadler is one of those actors who like if you know who he is and you recognize who he is you're gonna have a lot of fun watching movies from like you know 95 to now he's literally in the first episode of Tales from the Crypt by the way um, yeah. he's amazing he's amazing he gives this these like long monologues to the camera because he's a he's an executioner these long monologues to the camera about how um, how it feels to be death um, and it's uh, and then he plays death in Bogus Journey and he gives it a completely different read um so william sadler is like yeah. one of those guys who like yeah he, he doesn't get his due and he's in so many amazing genre movies i think we just from a time perspective i think we're almost out of it any other final thoughts before we wrap this thing up i guess i know you guys have been talking about these siege movies and i was um the the film made me think about other movies that take place at bars or movies that have just like very comparable uh, sequences that even if the whole movie does not take place at a bar, the bar has a, is a very prominently featured and sort of is like the home base of uh, our cast of characters. Um, I was curious if there were certain ones that um, films that came to mind. There were two for me in particular, but I'm curious uh, what came to mind for you guys. Maybe just because we just watched it. The, the only movie that was really on my mind watching this was Assault on Precinct 13 because it just feels like it's it's trying to do a very similar a similar thing. I also got a little bit of a sense of um, – I don't – not necessarily The Running Man because this has nothing in common with The Running Man. But I felt like the overall like aesthetic and lighting and, you know, kind of like in the future um, – this drug will be big versus in the future. Everyone watches the number one game show. Like it just really reminded me of those like quasi future eighties uh, movies, which I, I really liked the opening of this. So those are the kind of the yeah. two that stood out for me. Yeah. For me, it was uh hobo with a shotgun, uh, a similar sort of, uh, we're going to go balls to the walls. We're going to try and make a movie. That's essentially um, when you walk down the video store aisle, 
um, and you saw these crazy covers, we're going to try and make a movie that's as crazy as those covers. Um, it like you saw the cover of the Exterminator two, and you're like, "Well, that movie's got to be that crazy, right?" And you're like, "Well, for the last fifteen minutes, yeah." Um, and uh, and then I also thought of uh, weirdly enough, I thought of uh, Roadhouse. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. This bar as a sort of centralizing location, and then there's sort of being outside criminal forces trying to like uh, subvert that that little micro community, even though that community is pretty grody. Uh, the idea of trying to take that community away is 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 uh was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. I um right from pretty much once I realized what the premise was, I, it made me think of Shaun of the Dead oh, because especially yeah, yeah. because these character the the, the hypers uh, are basically zombies. Um, like they're, they are very similar to zombie like creatures and it's all about like trying to block every possible entrance, uh, while also like inappropriately drinking because you're in a bar. Um, it very much reminded me of that. And also the, um, the sort of, um, centerpiece sequence in Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark. Oh yeah. That's a great call. Takes place at a very similar, like ultra dive bar and it's a, essentially the the characters storm a bar and very sadistically go one by one killing the people in the bar but um the um it had that sort of um i i can't imagine that movie was not a, a sort of a hallmark or or um a reference point in some way along the line for creating just a sustained nightmare action sequence set in one bar. Oh my God. And, and you know, you actually just gave me the reference I needed. This movie cast, I know Bill Paxton has sadly passed away, but like this movie casts William Sadler instead of like a Bill Paxton. Like a Bill Paxton is a character actor that we all love and respect and has been in a million movies that we all love and respect. But William Sadler is the guy who doesn't get sung as much. And Bill Paxton in that movie has a similar sort of like I'm a dumb hick, but I'm really good at killing vibe. The difference is that William Sadler has a sweetness to him and and uh, and and um, which Bill Paxton usually has. But Bill Paxton in that movie is just like after 10 minutes, you realize there's no sweetness there. That's all just part of his like uh, his uh, his sort of toxic trap to suss in, you know, whoever's left. Uh, I think Near Dark's a great a great sort of reference point And uh, uh, I love that movie. Yeah, we covered it on the show last year. That movie rules. But yeah, I'll, I'll do some final thoughts. So that's what I that's uh, that's probably a good jumping off point. This is this is a movie about communities and the small connections that we build and the mutual the sort of uh, mutual histories, mutual pains and um, the mutual sort of healing that we can all do together. And the VFW hall is this sort of um, this this mel- this uh, merging point for um the old generation and the new generation because they take in Tom Williamson before they realize they're under siege. They're like, he just came back. He's drinking with us, whatever. But also the dark side of that where like Stephen Lang is like a full on drunk and like he thinks like, well, shit, I I feel inadequate. I can't do shit about this. I'm just going to get drunk in the bathroom until they come and kill us. Um, That's sort of that's sort of a beautiful, um, awful mix of um, this is a point that's for this is a point in in uh, on the earth that's for sort of sucking in whoever um needs a place to go this vfw hall is a place for all these these folks to get together but also it has a dark side because it's for a bunch of folks that um specifically veterans of foreign wars probably saw um some shit um 
and very likely, maybe likely are dealing with some sort of trauma from that event. Uh, even if they've kind of worked through it, they still have those memories. It's still something that they can't quite explain to people that didn't have it. Um, and so that sort of like melding of friendships where all these guys have gone off in their own direction, that Lou character seems to have gone on pretty well, seems to have figured his shit out more or less. Um, it, it, he, even he is drawn back. Um, to this to this particular point um, and the fact that like booze both brought them together but also like uh, it's it's <laughs> at the end of the day the party's got to stop at some point right um, so that, that's why I love this the movie is kind of aware of of the facets of how this fall this hall works but for a movie that's not very subtle um, it does kind of uh, uh, gently insert moments where um, you're like, this is what the community means at this point. This is where the community matters right now. Uh, and that's why that's why I, I was so attached to this movie is because it's a character focused movie that's all about this strange little community that ultimately I couldn't understand. I haven't served in foreign wars. I haven't seen the shit, quote unquote. I, I couldn't understand it. So like this idea of getting dropped in this world of all these old guys from a completely separate generation, probably far more conservative than me, have completely different views on politics and violence. Um, and yet I find them all uh, human is why I was attached to this movie. So Aaron, what, what are your kind of, what do you, what do, what do you got? Yeah, I um. So my my estimation, I I w- I'd be up for seeing this movie again. Um, I I I never came into this like uh, I'm gonna excoriate this movie, this piece of garbage. It just didn't quite click with me the way I was hoping to. Um, I think I do relate to the characters uh quite a bit. I've seen Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, so I f- I feel like I get it in general. <laughs> well, you've watched um, Gods and Generals. Um, what? No, I'm not. No. Means... Yeah. Get it. Oh, yeah. Also, oh, I, I've seen I've seen Gettysburg. I'm aware of gods and generals. So I think I, I like yeah, the you, Civil War you've probably served longer in the Civil War than certain Civil War soldiers. Yeah, I've I've thought about watching uh, Brian De Palma's war film for a while. Uh, I think I, I get it. I get what <laughs> war is like you haven't been to uh, war, but you've, yeah, you know, you've been to war. You know what it's like. Uh, oh, yeah. I've been in the shit. Uh, I've been in the shit. Like, uh, first time I saw a Full Metal Jacket, a gorgeous film, saw it uh, on VHS, Pan Scam. Um, so I didn't really get the majesty. I mean, that's. I can't think of anything worse that happened during Vietnam than that. Imagine um, the eye strain. It was tough. I, I'm like, there's probably things I'm missing happening off frame, and I can't see because I'm so blinded by the. That's what they call the fog of war. Uh, so, yeah. I think I get the characters pretty well. They also like drinking. I understand that quite a bit. Uh, Ben to VFWs to do karaoke. Uh, cash only. Uh, hopefully you remember your ATM pin code. Don't have to, uh, borrow money from your brother. And then you guys kind of disagree on how much money you ultimately borrowed. And it causes a fight for a few weeks. Uh, not specific <laughs> at all, but it's just a general <laughs> thing that happens to people. Something you got to watch out for. Um, that and the hype heads. 
where 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 I'm saying stuff like, "Hey, every time we went up, we both got a drink. So how could I owe you more than the overall bill?" And he insists that you drank way more than him. But how does that make sense if every time we both got a drink? Um, but anyways, yeah, I think that I think those are my final thoughts. I think pretty good movie. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> so yeah, Aaron, we uh, we tapped this month out. Thank you very much for joining us. So heal, so heal. Is there anything you want to plug right now? Um. Well, like I said at the very top of the show, um, the festivals that I ordinarily help run are all canceled. So, uh, there's not a whole lot um, that I have to plug. I guess the only thing that I would plug is to say quickly, I feel like we are in um, sort of like a golden age of John Carpenter homages. And so, if you are a fan of those, um, the other one that came out quite recently that is... but takes the homage approach in a very different direction is a brazilian movie called baccarat um oh we consider yeah doing it for this month i really want to see that movie yeah, yeah. That's, the movie sounds amazing it's not trying to mimic a john carpenter movie no one would ever watch that and be like oh i wonder if he made this um the way that they could potentially do with this movie but um but it sort of takes the with carpenter there's like highbrow and lowbrow happening at the same time and it sort of uh takes the sort of more social commentary from they live um, and less of the like the thriller elements. So it's very exciting to see a movie like VFW and then a movie like Baccarat just coming out within a matter of months or like one month of each other. So my, my plug is essentially for the movie Baccarat, um, which I believe is on VOD now. Yes, yes. The end of June is when people will hear this. I wonder what the world will look like when people hear this. Will people hear this? Probably not great. I don't know. We've been talking about that. That's the problem. We have more than enough time to get well ahead on our schedule, but also realize we may be recording for nothing. So if you're hearing this and you've survived, who knows what at this point. Uh, Congratulations. And please uh, rate us on iTunes. (laughs) So he'll just know that if this gets a lot worse one of your last contributions to this dying country will have been a podcast <laughs> do we do we release post posthumous um podcasts we've never I've been wondering before. that like if one of us died from covid i think we made this joke maybe just to the two of us but now it's on an episode like that we'd have to go hey i'm so sorry about your loss to our respective wife can i get <laughs> 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 really we can we can do we transfer it's really easy um <laughs> it's really simple. you can just send me the computer you probably don't want to you probably don't want to see what else are you saying you don't want his legacy to live on <laughs> where he talks about vfw <laughs> so, so next next month we're actually doing we're second year in a row we're doing a super month uh, again, we have we have high expectations for the uh, country and internet to be still be here. Um, but uh, last summer was we were doing a Lovecraft adaptation month in July. That was our plan, and then so much stuff got on the list. We're like, hey, there's no rules for this podcast. It's just Peter and Peter and myself. Like, why don't we just do a super month? We'll do July and August. Uh, and the same thing happened this year. We 
uh, we were uh, talking about that we wanted to do a month on horror remakes that are actually really good. There's a ton of shitty remakes. There's a t- there's a ton of shitty horror remakes. Uh, there is actually a lot that are worthwhile, and it would be fun to talk about those because most of them, with the, with with some exceptions like The Ring. I feel like it's fair to say they do not get their due at all in that most people dismiss them as inferior. And a lot of times, yes, that's true, but there's a lot of things worth talking about. So that list got pretty long and we decided why not make it a tradition, at least for one more year, to do a double month in July and August. So we are doing uh, horror remakes. We don't really have a title yet. I can tell you next week for sure is uh, Tom Savini's uh, The Night of the Living Dead remake from 1990. We're going to follow that right away with another... uh, We're going to start with a little mini three-episode month on Romero remakes. We're going to do Night of the Living Dead. We're going to do the best... What's what's his... I want to say Zach Penn, but that's the writer. What is wrong? Zack Snyder movie, Dawn of the Dead. Mm -hmm. I think Peter... And James Gunn scripted. James Gunn, yes. Uh... Who, Zach Penn is definitely a writer of, I think, X-Men 2. Uh, this is what happens when we record late in the I think it was night. David Hayter. God damn go it, Peter. Uh, <laughs> also, I believe you're forgetting the Zack Snyder Owl movie, which was his best movie. Uh, th- those owls. Gahool. The owls of they Gahool. Were, they were Gahool? They were the Guardians, <laughs> they were, I would they... say. <laughs> They're the legend of the Guardians of Ghoul. Now it just rolls off the tongue, it's, doesn't it? I think it's I think it's it's definitely something Guardians, because I remember when yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy it's, not reading the comic book came out, I'm like, they're making another Gahool movie. Legends of the Guardians, Owl of <laughs> Great title, rolls off the tongue. Uh, as many somehow that guy rebounded. As you can get in there as possible. Yeah. Uh, but we're doing Dawn of the Dead, and then we're also gonna do the remake of the Crazies. With Timothy Oliphant right after that. And then we have the Blob remake, the Ring remake, the Piranha remake. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, Peter. Oh, Invasion of the Body Statues remake. And one more. You have any guess what it is, Peter? Uh, what about the Ring? Uh, no, we're all, we're yes, we're doing the ring, Peter. We, uh, invasion of the body snatchers. Yeah, I already said that one too. Mm, I just can't guess, Aaron. What's the what's the last one? Well, I'm actually hoping that you know it, so I don't have to pull this up, but I will. I'm trying uh, to find. Uh, I'm doing it. For, uh, Nosferatu the Vampire. Nosferatu the Vampire. The Werner Herzog movie. The Herzog movie. So, yeah, uh, kind of an eclectic month, both like 80s remakes and more recent ones. Uh, some movies that have definitely, I think the Ring remake is a good example of one that is kind of, even though the original is really great, has kind of um, not only outlived its uh, predecessor in the, the public's mind, but also um, kind of started a whole horror trend. So, uh, and if you're thinking, hey, there's some other horror remakes that you guys should talk about. Yeah, it's a long list of actually pretty good ones. And we already found some slots to put in some other ones so yeah excited for this double month peter yes very very excited it's gonna be uh it's gonna be kind of a a going back to our origins in a sense we wanted a lot of these movies we wanted to cover when we first started the show years and years ago yeah when we were kind of like let's let's talk about movies that people in generally feel like aren't that good and that we think are good and instead we decided to talk about movies that uh Everyone thinks they're good, and no one thinks they're good, including us. Really uh, kind of became things. Yeah. Just uh, movies, I think, is really our guiding principle. But yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, good night. Yeah.
Good night. Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs)